fellow Otis coming up with an Afrobeat tune. Versus Emotion Podcast Organic Conversations with Creative Minds Hello world and welcome back to Versus Emotion. I am Laura Alemi, founder of VIM, writer and producer of this space. All our guests on VIM do represent somebody really unique to us and every single guest is a perfect example of talent and soul waves spread around for anyone to catch like shooting stars and keep in their memory and for future generations to discover like a virtual time capsule. And we are all about organic conversations, authentic conversations with creative minds. And today we are here to celebrate the life of a true trailblazer, a pioneer, the protagonist of a piece of black music history, Sonny Roberts. And here with us today, his legacy of light, his beautiful daughter and talented fashion and interior designer, Cleon Roberts. Hi, Cleon. How are you? Hi, Laura. I'm good, thank you. Very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm really happy we reconnected. Uh, I was truly inspired by your father's story and by the way you're actually continuing the legacy and keeping on this amazing piece of black music history alive. Um, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Thank you for having me. So am I. Of course. So, as we said, Sonny Roberts, your father, your dad, um, UK and Jamaican trailblazer of black music and actually the uh, founder of the first black-owned uh, music record studio called Planeton. Um, yeah. Can you tell yeah. us, uh, shall we start from there? Shall we start from when your dad moved to the UK and actually founded the studio? Yes, yes, yes. start from the very beginning. Um, yes, my father came from came to the uk from jamaica um and he when he well he was a carpenter by trade learned his trade in jamaica um he was born in the country of uh, a place called manchester a, a little village called spice grove in manchester um and he was a very very talented as a boy growing up um doing carpentry uh, so to further his career and talents, uh, he went, an aunt sent him to Kingston and that's where he first got his taste of music and that was downtown Kingston. And, you know, back then that was in the 50s. So, you know, as you can imagine, 40s and 50s, you can imagine, you know, it, it was, that was the hub of when all the, the music sound systems and everything started in Jamaica and there was a lot there. So he carried that um, and aunt secured his passage to come to uh, England. That was when the call of Windrush came about. Um, and so he came to England uh, with one grip in his hand with um, some vinyl and his tools and um, yeah, ended up in, uh, ended living up in, in Labrick Grove. That's where he was living. And um, you know, Went, started off working in uh, carpentry factories and uh, 
that's where he met my godfather. So the two of them decided to work together and uh, set about and doing, you know, private commissions, uh, carpentry private commissions. But it was at the time when a light bulb struck for my father, where he had noticed that, you know, to supplement his income, and he was a very good carpenter, he thought, well, why don't I make speaker boxes? And in London at that time, there was a surgeon's, you know, that was the start of sound systems. You know, you had Duke Reed, uh, Duke Vin, sorry, and sorry, Duke Reed, and who were, you know, started in the industry. So he, he was making speaker boxes. And then he ended up, um, again, to supplement his income. Then he thought, well, why don't I do it myself? So he set up a small sound system um, called Lavender. And he was playing at parties and weddings and funeral. And, you know, and, and at that time, it was a time where there was nothing for the West Indian community, you know, for socialize, to socialize. So, um, you know, with that, obviously, if you're having your sound system, you're gonna attract singers and people that will come to the party. And um, that was then he was asked, you know, and then he, there was nowhere for them to record their music. And so again, it was another light bulb moment for, for my father, Sonny. And uh, so he decided to open up a studio, build, well, he actually built his own recording studio. And that was, again, using his skills, his carpentry skills, and um, set about looking for premises and uh, ended up in Kilburn, on Kilburn High Road, and uh, set about looking for premises and asking around. And it's an amazing story, actually, because he was... Again, it was sort of networking and, you know, the community supporting each other. Um, again, Windrush community. And he was, a friend had pointed to him and introduced him to uh, uh, an Indian Jamaican who was a tailor. And uh, as luck would have it, he had his own premises, but he was working from home. And he had a little tailoring uh, business in, in part of the home and he had space in the basement. So he basically took my dad to the spot and yeah, my dad took the, the location and that was it. He set about building his studio and that premises was at 108 Cambridge Road in Kilburn. So in Kilburn, I'm telling you, Kilburn and Kilburn High Road in particular, uh, they have a, a piece in our story between you and me as well, because our, our friend in common, the wonderful Alan Higgins, yes. who is also an amazing artist, by the way, so um, actually helped us to reconnect recently because we had met a long time ago, right? And then we, for different reasons, life throws at you. Uh, we actually ha hadn't seen each other for quite a long time. And... Uh, uh, Kilburn High Road is the place where Alan works most of the time. So it was always, you know, some you've kept in touch with him. And then, you know, we actually reconnected through Alan and 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 going to his uh to his place, to his place of work. I was hearing a lot about you, and I'm sure you were hearing a lot about me. Mm -hmm. And then we reconnected. Um and also there is another thing I I, I read, and uh, you know, you have a, an incredible uh, uh amount of material about your dad Sonny Roberts and uh, I was reading that actually the first time that 
he got in touch with Island Records and with Chris Blackwell. It was what because he Chris Blackwell is, uh, is the founder of Island Records. Uh, actually, he was appointed to do some carpentry in his flat, and then they became friends. That's and then right. the, the story developed that way. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Because this was actually the beginning of Planeton and Orbiton at the record shop, where we'll talk about that later, becoming yeah. really the, you know, one of the, the the, the points of reference for yes, London yes. music lovers of, of that particular uh, genre. Yes, yeah, so tell us what happened there. Yes, yeah, so, um, you know, my, my dad and his, uh, my godfather, uh, Lenny Brown, um, they, you know, were getting, going around London and obviously, you know, meeting people. And, and one of the commissions was Chris Blackwell. So they did some work at his flat and, you know, because Chris was born in Jamaica. So you're going to have an, even though as a white man, he was a, a white Jamaican. Um, but the connection again, you know, because you have to remember back that in that time, there wasn't much like, you know, the vibrancy that you see now, of West Indian food and, you know, it, it wasn't like that back then. So it was very much underground, right? That kind very, of culture. So very yeah. much. And, you know, so to meet a fellow Jamaican and um, you know, they just instantly got on. Um and so then my dad also when Island Records, they had premises in Connaught Square. So um my my dad did some work there at his offices. And, um, but at, during that time, obviously my dad had set up Planetone Studios. And I think also, you know, the influence of, you know, meeting Chris, having a record label, him starting Island Records, because my dad met Chris when, you know, he was just starting Island Records. It was just the very, very beginning. So the two of them, you know, I would have thought they would have inspired each other. Um, you know, obviously Chris had a, a, a bit of income, not much, because apparently, they, and I've actually heard Chris say that, um, we went to lunch once with him and uh, to witness him say, you know, in front of all of his staff, you know, and he, he stood up and he said, look, and he pointed to my father and he says, I know this man from the very beginning and I'm so honoured to have Sonny sitting at the table with me. And he, said, he pointed at him and said, this man knew me when I had nothing you know, I was just starting at the very beginning of Island Records, selling records out of his little mini because Chris used to have a mini. So, yeah, the connection there was was very strong. However, um, as Island were growing, more artists uh, artists were descending on, on Island Records, um, you know, just coming from Jamaica, uh, trying to get a record deal and to, to make music. Um, but where Island Records was situated was in the centre of London, which was pretty much kind of gentrified then. So it brought the attention of the neighbours and the landlord. And, well, the, the neighbours had complained to the landlord. So Chris was asked to move premises. So he had asked my dad, as you, as you do, you ask around, you know, do you know of any premises because I have to vacate. Um, so my dad said, look, you know, where, where my studio is, um, the landlord is, it's quite a big property. I will ask him to see if there are premises. And uh, as luck would have it, there was premises there. So Island Records moved to 108 Cambridge Road. So 
you can imagine that was the start. You know, my dad's studio was in the basement, uh, the ground floor, sorry, and then you had Island on the next floor. But this, the incredible part of this story was the the landlord who owned that building, Sikrim Goptal, and I'm sure you've heard of that name. His son, uh, yeah. Lee Goptal, who is the founder of uh, Trojan Records. Um, so at that time, when um, my dad had his studio, Lee Goptal was an accountant. And, uh, you know, you can just imagine you're, you, this is your family home. You're coming to and from work. You know, you're, you're seeing and you must be hearing. And, and, I, and I heard that my dad was a, a, an amazing cook as well. So he used to cook in the studio, as you do, because, you know, you're recording all day. You're there till night. So obviously you're going to eat, sleep and, and make music. So my dad had told me this, that one day there was a knock at the door. And standing there was a, a, he said, a little chubby Indian man, young Indian man, and, and that was Lee. And he asked to come in. And uh, my dad said, before you knew it, Lee was in there almost, well, pretty much every evening, day in, weekends, in there, catching a vibe, you know, because as the studio was growing, um, more artists were coming to record. And... Uh, and my dad was also cutting vinyl as well. So all his recordings, he was cutting vinyl as well. So my dad said, Lee just turned to him and said, look, Sonny, I want to do this. I really want to get in the music business. Can I give me some of these records to sell? You know, And that was the start. So my dad basically looked at him and said, look, are you crazy? You don't know a thing about music. What, what do you know? And he said, no. And there's a famous phrase that Lee said to my dad and he said, Sonny, if you give me S-H-I-T, I can sell it. And my dad said, okay. <laughs> I think that was convincing enough. Well, it, it sounds to me that your dad, Sonny, was not only the pioneer of black uh, music and a really big piece of the history in the UK and we said all around the world, we'll, we'll see why in a minute, but it was also the catalyst for the start of many other things that became really huge. And, you know, we, we're just mentioning Island Records and then Trojan Records. Um, what? Let's, let's just uh, go a little bit more intimate, you and me. What is it or when is it the moment um, in your memory when you actually realized growing up that your dad was doing something so magical? Oh, my goodness me. We kind of jump in the gun a bit but you know the first I would say the very very first is when my dad um had started as as his business grew and as he became more successful in music uh, then he started he had to use a, a bigger recording studio and at that time he closed down the, the studio um and I think when he took me to the studio as a child and just seeing all these musicians and the instruments and watching what he could do and, you know, because you remember back then there was no computer. It was, you know, musician had to play. So just to see them one by one and, and the time it took and yeah. then, you know, just, just seeing how they 
just watching my dad, because apparently my dad was very, very animated when he was in the studio. You know, he couldn't read music, but he, he'd use his, his mouth and he'd use his, his, his body, you know. He was very, very physical. So that's how he would express himself when he's trying to arrange and produce music. You know, apparently he would make the name that the sound of the bass with his mouth and all the different elements. Of course, and he and he did sing as well because he did kind of yeah. Sonny Earl, um, I found some vinyl. Apparently, it's my dad singing. Oh wow! Okay, (laughs) and also, you know, live sessions. You must have been the witness of so many amazing, truly emotional live sessions, the real ones, the ones where there are no special effects, there are no computerized kind of sound systems helping the the, the talent, right? So yes. it's all about raw and really raw talent coming through. So it must have been magical. And also your dad worked a lot with many other musicians, you know, just to yes. mention a few, Jackie Edwards, Danny Livingstone, the Marvels, and mm-hmm. Spangling and uh, you know and uh, Owen Gray and, and then that fantastic really, really amazing small. yeah really that's what I was getting to exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the yeah. fantastic amazing yeah. Uh, huge successful record by Millie Small by Millie Small uh, my boy lollipop I think that was the, the the title of the song um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how your dad, Matt Millie, and how this became a true hit? Mm. Well, how my dad met Millie was because Island Records were upstairs. So Millie was smart, signed to Island Records. Um, and then when that track was thought of, I mean, it's it's just an, a natural thing that you would do, if you know, because in order to rehearse a track, to write the track, to lay down the rhythm of the track, the arrangement, you know, you need a space to do that. So it just made sense. You do it. There's a studio there. So that's where the track was laid. That's because Tony Washington, um, who was signed to Island Records, he played on on Winnie Small's track, um, and worked a lot in my dad's recording studio um so that's where the track was laid down and you know that's where she would rehearse in in the in planetone studio my dad's studio so that's how and, my dad met her and that track sold seven million copies yeah. and yeah. it was number yeah. two in the uk yeah. charts in the u.s Obviously charts the, the finishing of the track you know the yeah. Yeah. actual track was done in another studio but the basis of laying down the arrangement, you know, with Tony. Tony played keyboards, Tony Washington. And apparently one of his, his song is on the B side as well. Um, so, you know, and, and thankfully Tony is still alive. So, you know, that's that's why I've, I've come to learn a lot more. Um, I'm actually seeing him next week and I, I can't wait. Um, oh, that's amazing. So it, it's going to be even more... Um deep in terms of knowledge what you already know because he was there all the time right he was working with your dad so and the good thing is that um millie is going to be um honored with a blue plaque that's amazing yes next week saturday the 20 28th i believe yeah she's going to be a blue plaque 
amazing week. fantastic yeah, right. well congrats congrats to tony washington yeah um, exactly yeah mm. and then in 1970 your dad opened the first established really you know afro-caribbean uh record shop and right. in 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 london right where was the shop uh in a place called harlston Mm-hmm. um in Wilsdon Junction so it's it's just a little way down the road uh out of the town center yeah uh, up, going up from the... from Kilburn High Road the famous Kilburn High Road no, no not, <laughs> not from Kilburn um where Harlesden is you've got uh, Harlesden is not too far from Kilburn but then it's it's a, a little area called Wilsdon Junction Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! I know about Junction Station, and there was Orbiton Records, right? That's correct. Yes, yes, yes. You worked at that shop. Seventy, I did. I did. Yeah, how long? For how long? Oh my goodness me! (laughs) I didn't really have a childhood. My my father, I think, because he he really didn't have a son as such, Um, and I think it was a case that. Yes, I have a daughter. I have daughters, and they're going to learn the business. So, and I think because I was sort of the middle child, um, and then also the other thing is that my mother was a nurse, so she used to do night work. So you can imagine you can't leave your children on your own on the, on their own at such a young age. So my dad used to to take us pretty much everywhere. <laughs> There was a natural progression, yeah, right? Absolutely. To 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 be at the shop. Be allowed, wouldn't be allowed today, but yeah. <laughs> I used to do a lot of my homework at the record shop in the studio. We did my well, I'm a bit my, my baby sister, Andrette, um, you know, she she was so I was sort of more because I'm the middle child, so um yeah, I used to do a lot of, of homework and, and stuff in, in those facilities. What are the fondest memories you have of that shop and the life between the studio and the record shop? Oh my goodness me. The it was just because it was a specialist shop. So my dad he loved all different types of music. Um, you know, and, and his love for rhythm and blues and and um, jazz. Um, and that's why he opened that shop, because he wanted a shop that he called it the home of black music. Um, later on, that was a slogan for it. And that shop had every day. if you wanted any type of music, my father would try and make sure that he would get it. So it was a, a melee of, of all different types of sounds coming and going. And then you, you have to remember, with that comes different cultures, different people. Um, but uh, one of my most memorable moments were having Africa Bombata wow. uh, come into the shop. Um, you know, I was in my teenage years then and, and you know, I, I was literally starstruck um, seeing him come in. Anyone and, would be, actually. Yeah, because he's such a larger-than-life character. And and I remember him just saying to my dad, listen, I came to London, I'm here in London, and I, I just asked around. 
I want music of my culture and I wanted to get the sounds, different sounds, and they brought me here. Um, so wow. that was really quite, quite an honor just to hear him say that. Um, and then also Jules Holland. Oh, wow. Okay. That was a great moment. Uh, Jules used to come to our shop um, a lot in the mornings, I remember that. And he used to buy rhythm and blues, a lot of rhythm and blues and jazz. Um, and as you know, at that, at that time, he was uh, a presenter on, um, is it The Tube? The Tube, yeah, The Tube, yes. Paulie yeah. so as a teenager again, you know, and sort of, you know, my background, having the interest in fashion. So, you know, Paulie Yates, I used yeah. to just marvel at her on the screen, such a beautiful woman. Um, and, you know, so I, I knew who these people were. My dad didn't know who they were at all. It must have been so crazy to just see them jumping out of TV and coming into your shop, right? Exactly. Into your dad's shop. Well, yeah. the other thing is because, you know, the shop was not too far from the BBC studios, film studios. So it's, um, you know, we used to have people come and go. John Peel was very close. The, the great Tommy Vance. Um, oh, wow. you know, uh, Gary Crowley, we used to have come into the record shop. But I think John Peel, that, that again, really, really was, was quite a, amazing time to have a presence of someone so great as John Peel. The other thing, what was also amazing was because where the shop was located, um, it was at the industrial part of Harlesden. So the shop backed onto behind the shop at the back area that it's sort of like one part of the land. So way around the back, you would have, it was an area called Park Royal. And in that area, you had all the big factories of all the major products that, you know, we consumed, especially at that, that time, you know, this is before we had our Marks and Spencers and, you know, all our ready-made meals. So Walls, we had Walls Factory, we had Guinness, we had Heinz, uh, McVitie's factories were based um, in Park Royal. Now, the thing about that was so great about these factories, well, you know, when I said great, it was predominantly um, the staff that were employed at those factories were from the Rindrush um, generation. Mm -hmm. So... West Indians in their droves. So you can imagine the size of these factories were huge. Um, but the thing is, the route to those factories, you had to, and then remember, there were not many, many bus connections or train, you know, the train extensions. So the bus, I remember, you used to, I remember seeing, I mean, thousands of West Indians going to and from these factories in the morning when they finish, they come back in their droves, you know, and, and then what my dad did was he would, he put a speaker box outside the shop. I think you can see here. They're right there. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, so he would actually diffuse music outside yes. the shop. Yes. And that yes. must have been so oh, comforting gosh. to those oh, uh, people Absolutely. away from home and listening yeah. to their music while coming back or going to work. Absolutely. Um, a bit like amazing. The Piper, do you know what I mean? Yeah, That's what yeah. it was. You know? yeah. So what he would do, he would put on all the tunes, and I'm telling you, you I 
I mean, back then it was, we used to have queues of people, especially like on a Friday when it's payday. They would be packed out the side of the shop, inside the shop. You couldn't even get into the shop. And I just remembered, you know, these places, give me that tune, give me that tune, give me that tune. Their hands used to be go up. And, you know, we trust them. So we used to have like piles, you know, these men, because remember again, there weren't clubs or bars for that community due to racism. So again, you used to, and that was like the surgeons of sound system and, and music, black music coming alive and becoming so great in Britain was because they used to, we used to have a lot of house parties. These West Indians had lots of house parties. You know, there was on a Friday, Saturday night, Friday night, you know, you every street road, guaranteed had house parties. So these people, they used to buy a lot of music. I'm talking like, you know, 20, you used to get 25 records in a box. Sometimes you see them out with 75, three boxes, four boxes of records. You know, that's a lot of vinyl. Um, and that that's how it was. And we used to just... I mean, it got to the stage where sometimes it was so busy, you know, my mum, when she's off from work or her nights off, she used to come down and help. You know, we had to employ extra staff. My sister Andrea used to come and help. You know, we'd be like churning out the bags, churning out. <laughs> it was a phenomenal time. So that, you know, really, really sits with me. And, and again, you know, I didn't just used to just sell records. I used to also play on the decks in the shop. So, uh, yeah. So, and, and, and you I, know, it's more in my teenage years. And I remember my dad used to train me literally how to handle vinyl, you know, how to, how to hold it, how to play it, you know. So, my musical ear, um, you know, because I was exposed to these sounds, is, you know, I can hear two bars of a tune and name that tune. Yeah, Fantastic! That, that, you're 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 a living kind of music recognition software, I'm yeah. sure, and yeah. and what a great, amazing piece of history that memory is. Thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, um, and and the shop didn't stop Sonny Roberts from keeping on producing music. Absolutely the opposite, right? Because he he started your dad started to produce amazing soca album music. Um, I think it was in the 1975, the first one with the Dominican singer Roy Alton, and that first yeah. album. What 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 do you remember? How was he doing all of this? How is how was he dividing yeah. the time between this so amazingly you know um, busy record shop and the busy record producing um, activity. He was just a, a force to be reckoned with. I, you know, he used to lock the shop and go straight to the studio um, and, and be in the studio till probably what, five, six in the morning, come back sometimes even later and then open the shop half tired. I remember, you know, you know, the, the sound sponges, We had a lot of those in, in his office, in the record shop. So, because he had a little office. So as he's, there's a little bit here, you can see this. He went through and rented. Yeah, ju just to make sure that we, we tell our yeah. listeners what's happening. Yeah. You are sitting in your dad's office. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so at the back of you, I can see his amazing picture 
with mm. the picture of the shop and the way the shop and you know the, the road and, and and the way the shop was situated in that road mm-hmm. and the office situated yeah. aside so yeah because yeah. otherwise i'm gonna think oh, what is <laughs> he used to sleep in the office during the day wow and then either the staff or myself um if i was there like during school holidays i was at the shop weekends i was at the shop um so that's how we really sort of was able to do this but you know we've kind of missed a very significant part um because you went from the shop to soka um in 1971 Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was, that was his kind of first major recording. He was approached by a Nigerian, um, who told him about this band in Nigeria called the Nkenges and, uh, said, look, Sonny, I want to bring this band to London, um, to do some shows. So again, you know, it, it, it was all those that again, in, in 1970, you had, Africans come into London so again there was nothing for them in terms of entertainment and then also you have to remember a lot of these venues wouldn't hold an event like that due to racism so um and and put on shows like that such as that um so they did some shows the shows sold out did really really well um and then my dad decided to record them so they obviously to record a nine piece band. Um, so he had to hire a, a bigger studio, a much bigger studio called Chalk Farm Studios in Camden. So that's where the album was record and recorded. And, and that theoretically was the first Afrobeat album. Um, and that was recorded in 1971. Um, and then that album did really, really well, sold truckloads apparently in Nigeria. Um, you know, and that's testament we know from, from, I'm, I'm still in touch with the Omambala family, William Omambala and his daughter. Um, so that, that album did very, very well. And, um, that brought the attention to other, um, African musicians. And my dad did work with some other African musicians. And I think what's quite astonishing about that is that being a Jamaican you know, you're producing African music, you know, not, not scar or, you know, to, to hear that sound. But I think because my, my dad was always listening to different music. And then remember, if you're producing scar, the BPM, it's, you know, you, it's, it's fast, you know, so hearing, I suppose, hearing, you know, that African sound, remember you had fella as well. You had the seventies, mm-hmm. that influence of, of, um, you know, uh, blue beats and everything. So that BPM, that sound, that that's it. It, it was just so natural to him to produce something, you know, African music. And then also, you remember the base of of you know Jamaica, our drum beat. So um, you know that that's basically what he did. You know, it's... and and truly, I mean, the the yeah. the, the fact that. Music has no borders, right? And your dad really had it in his soul, Mm. this kind of music without borders, right? It didn't really Mm -hmm. matter where the music was coming from. He was passionate about, you know, making sure that some kind of music genres would go through in a moment in which it was really hard to have a sense of community because 
there were a lot of like, you know, restrictions on what people could do and not do. I mean, I remember coming to London the first time in the 90s and in the 90s, it was a totally different story. Mm. But I went through the history of whatever happened before between the 50s and the 70s, early 80s. And it's not a fun story to be told, right, for Mm -hmm. any different kind of uh, black ethnic people that were moving to London. So, again, your father uh, was an amazing catalyst of, you know, making sure that some kind of union could happen through music. Yes. And that, and that's what he did, you know, with his yeah. uh, with his productions, and and that's a truly big part of of uh, the positive history. Is that yeah. kind of uh, story that you never hear too much? It's almost a blackout thing because people don't write it in books. You don't learn it at school, and but we here at Versus Emotion, we love blackout history. We love that kind of information that cannot come through any other way right and who better than you his daughter to tell us all about it and who better than you to thank you to tell i'm so grateful you're here today you have no idea (laughs) thank you this is this is really inspiring to me and we discussed it a a few days ago and recently as well Uh, i told you i'm truly honored i'm truly honored to be able to tell your dad's Mm -hmm. story and your story because you're very much you know, the legacy of light that is continuing this mm-hmm. trailblazing, fantastic promenade into real music. And it was real music, as we said, because... Oh, gosh, without a shadow there of was... that. I mean, the poker, <laughs> you know, again, as you said, you know, just communities just working to... And, and just trying to get their music across. And, mm-hmm. you know, Roy Alton, prime example, you know, approached my dad uh, in the early 70s and then they produced this album. My dad produced um, this, theoretically, the first, and I, I can say that, um, was the first UK soca album, um, Calypso. Well, I wouldn't even say Calypso. I'm going to say soca. Um, because why I say that is because when my dad produced that album, it brought the attention of, so this is where you got the, the, the global, you know, reaching, you know, international ears. Um, it was heard by a man called Charlie Records, Charlie in New York, who's an amazing man. There's a film that was screened at Shrebeka about Charlie. Wonderful man, I you know. And, um, and when he heard this album, because he Trini- he's a Trinidadian, and he said my gosh, you know, there's someone here making our music. So dad got a phone call from Charlie and said, man, I love what you've done with this album. Listen, I'm doing the same thing in New York. I'm bringing the sounds of Trinidad to New York. I would like to make a UK market. Let's meet. And that's that's how it happened. This was the start of Soka in, in the UK. So Charlie... And we- now- Sorry to interrupt. And and by the way, because we are going to, uh, we actually we are starting the show with a little uh, taste of Obuna Alu, which is one of the tracks right in the Afrobeat album mm-hmm. pro- produced by your dad. I just wanted to make sure that we say that so people know what they've been listening to at the starting of the show, at the beginning of the show. Um, 
yeah so continue please this is another amazing story yeah so really crossing you unifying yeah. communities diffusing music uh yeah. everywhere and also bridging mm. different countries from overseas and continuing to uh trailblaze basically mm-hmm. oh yes and uh so charlie came to london with a bag of music and uh said to my dad look these are these songs that are coming out. Do you want to license them? And when my dad heard them, my dad was like, yeah. And then the, the sounds were traveling and that's how Calypso became speeded up. Because when you listen to Tell Them, you think about it, this album is produced in 1975 and you hear that, that is not Calypso, that's Soka. Tell Them is, you know, <laughs> it's so fast. So that was the, the, the start of it. And that's why Charlie now took that sound and said, right, guys, Trinidad, we need to, to speed this up. <laughs> Here's this album. This is what we want. You know, not this la, 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 Calypso sound. We need to, we want that, that faster BPM. And there you had Sugar Boom Boom. Uh, you had Gimme the Ting, you had Lorraine, and these were records that my dad licensed, and he he uh, created a, a label specially for Soka, and that was the Sunbears label, and you know all those tracks were licensed and distributed by 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 my dad Sonny, um, and that was the start and the surge of 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 Soka, um, you know. And then when it, it, this is when it really blew up is when Sugar Boom Boom was released. And that brought the attention of the sound man. <laughs> you know, yes. the sound man in London. You had people like Daddy Ernie come come to the shop, you know. Daddy Ernie was always in the shop, you know. I, I have a love for that man so much. Um, you know, and, and watched Ernie grow from the days of Jerry and all those guys from Harlesden. But to see like... You know, people like Ernie, Daddy Ernie, and some of those sound guys say, "What? We want that record. We want. Give me that record." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's where you that you were hearing "Sugar Boom Boom" in the dances. You know, and that was the start of it. That's where Soka started to get popular because when we had a soundman put on a uh, a Soka record, it was like, "Wow!" <laughs> you know, but when you listen to the lyrics, it just really brought. The, the 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 dance just brought the dance alive um so yes that 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 was you know quite something and and then we you know my dad went on to supporting the notting hill carnival and and we had floats and you know djs were coming through uh, lord sam you know smoky joe you know <laughs> these guys you know martin j who is just an, an, a phenomenal guy. Um, you know, my dad sponsored him as a DJ and, you know, he's, he's a great person and he does some amazing work in Soka today. Um, you know, a real ambassador for Soka. Brilliant. Um, but yes, just to see, I'm so proud to see it grow to that level. Ah, and, and quickly, I'll just mention that M- M- Michelle, if you go on our, our um, social media pages, you'll see a tribute from Michelle Montano, because my father was responsible for breaking his career. Um, his first album, Too Young to Soka, um, we, we distributed that 
in London for his mother, um, Lady Elizabeth, Elizabeth, um, his mother. So it back then, I just remember her phoning all the time, you know, because she managed her son. You imagine, imagine a little nine-year-old kid with such a talent. So she used to phone, how many records you sell? You know, <laughs> how's it going? How's it going? Yeah. You know, and she came to London. She came to London to see my dad. And and it's just so lovely because we've made that connection again. We met in Jamaica, um, you know, and just to talk about those things and, and just to see Michelle now, how huge he is and doing so well. So I feel really, really proud, really proud of... of and, uh, and you should be. And... Uh, I think we can we can now say uh, a little bit about what happened when um, a silver record win came out. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think it was 1987, right? Mm. And uh, it was for "Can't Be with You Tonight" mm. by Judy Boucher. And um, what happened there? Because I know there's a juicy story behind that silver record. <laughs> Oh my goodness, it is, yeah. Well, in the so late 70s, my dad decided, he always went against the grain. So he always wanted to, when he was producing, he didn't want to do what everybody else was doing. Um, and I think because he loved blues so much and Nat King Cole, Sam Cooke. Um, so remember then you had reggae coming out, you know, that sound of reggae, your marvel, waiting in vain, you know, hearing those kind of lyrics. And, you know, it, it was a case of, I want to do it softer. I'm not going to go for the hard reggae. So my dad started, dad started to produce softer reggae. And he was approached by a, a great singer, Tim Chandel, who was singing um, amazing writer, I mean, if, if he was around today, I mean, those songs today was, you know, it, it could relate, it, you know, you can still play them. Um, so this sound, again, was very popular with the, the Windrush community because you can, they're getting older as well. So you want something for them as well, you know. So he was, this type of music was more sort of love songs and, so anyway, he went on from producing Tim um, and those albums, I mean, it sold so well. And I think that spurred him on to really, he knew he had something. And again, you know, you had some of the sound men playing Tim's records as well. Um, because, you know, you have to think you're in the dances and you're hearing, you know, your buff, 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 reggae. And then, and then you want something a bit softer. And, and the women loved that type of music, because you had lovers rock as well. So it was a case of this softer reggae, you know, and the lyrics just really warmed their hearts. So with that came other artists such as, you know, you had Reuben Richards, you had, oh my gosh, Rocky Campbell, Johnny Hope. And then came, well, Belinda Parker, amazing woman who, who did a cover of Gypsy Love and softened it up. And that was another record that played in the dances, Gypsy Love. So then that a young lady, he was approached by a young lady by the name of Judy Boucher, and she was, you know, great singer, and was working with a brilliant writer called Felix de Silva, who wrote this song for her. 
and then asked Dad to produce the album, which he did. And one of the tracks on the album called Can't Be With You Tonight um, was picked up by <laughs> was picked up by Lizzie Webb on on TVAM. Uh, Lizzie Webb is the exercise woman, like the she was like the lady version of Mr. Motivator. So, and I remember it so clearly because you know I'm going to school and I used to have this 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 show on on TV. And one morning I heard this record playing on TV. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is record. <laughs> <laughs> I know that record, right? <laughs> and I remember running upstairs and I was like, Dad, your record's on TV. <laughs> it was just, you know, that's how it was. And, you know, he's like, what? And he come running downstairs and we're all standing there like, my gosh. And she played it every day. This woman was playing this record every single day, every morning. That was her, um, you know, after she'd do a vibrate, that was her come down, you know, slow down the pace, and she would relax to this. And then the phones just started ringing. And because, again, you see, it wasn't just the West Indian community that this song related to, the Irish community, because the Irish love country and Western. And um, so you had, and, and I think because of the lyrics and the way how the song was, it was a ballad, very soft, and apparently it just blew up the airwaves on on TVAM, and uh, and then we got approached, and the track went national, and this track stayed in the charts for fourteen weeks, <laughs> in the British UK charts, um, and it was at number two, and the I remember at the time when. You know, it was at number five, and then this other track came out of nowhere like a bolt of lightning by a lady called Madonna. And I, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. And I, when I heard that track, I said to my dad, I said, it's going to be difficult. Mm. A song like this is going to be very, very hard. And this song was called La Isla Bonita mm -hmm. by Madonna. Yeah. And... I thought, well, I don't think we're going to get this number one. And I'm telling you, that's why it was in the charts for so long, because we were neck and neck with Madonna, and she was number one. And that's why it was in the charts for 14 weeks. And I'm so proud to say that that record, um, Judy Boucher holds a record for being the um, first Caribbean to hold a record in the UK British charts for so long, at 14 weeks. So, but, um, but the memory linked to these events, which is you suddenly hearing on TV that song and recognizing it as your father's and going up to your dad and saying, Dad, that's your song on TV. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and being 14 weeks as number two in the British national charts is not yeah. really a joke, is it? So um, fantastic. And so the what happened after this big like you know uh national chart event for uh that track can't be with you tonight uh did your father continue producing what happened after that how do you recall anything oh happening goodness. after that yeah he pretty much you know um 
recorded uh, people like Joyce Bond. Um, that's another album. That's another great singer. Um, and it, so he was still recording music for the community. Um, and then he had now moved because obviously, you know, revenue, you, you know, if you have a hit record, you know, you need a bigger premises and your ambitions, you know, you, you, you want to thrive and, and, you know, so he decided to open up a bigger shop. Uh, so he, Orbitone Records uh, moved premises to the main Harleston High Street. Um, and then at that time, that was the introduction of, of CDs, you see. So I think Dad just thought, I need a bigger space now. This is where the market is going. And, you know, sadly, that's where vinyl started to wane um, mm. because people started to buy CDs. And I remember my dad saying, this thing not going to last. It's not going to last. You know, this little thing that we're looking at, you know, and, and, and I think for him it was – not an insult but he didn't like it much but he thought well I need to keep up with the times as he did throughout his whole career and and went into so that sort of still selling vinyl because we we still had to sell vinyl because you know that that was a market especially for the West Indian community you know for DJs for sound systems you know uh, at that time they were still playing vinyl especially it was more sort of 45s 12 inches mm, they were mm -hmm. playing Sorry, mm -hmm. 12 inches, yeah. they, they were playing yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, so I personally have 250 vinyl pieces from it my parents' really... record collection. And wow. I don't know how many 45s, because we used to call them 45s in Italy. That's but, right. Uh, I don't even know how many I have of those. <laughs> Just, uh, and, and they are one of the, you know, they are one of the few amazing, really emotional kind of, of, legacy objects if you want to call them Absolutely. that way that, that my, my parents left behind so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. so what are you doing what are you planning what what are you how do you see this uh, legacy history evolving um are you planning events are you planning i know you're already doing a lot of amazing beautiful things and you've been doing them through the years but you. anything you would like to share and also where can we find you and your uh, dad's legacy on uh, social media yes i am actually doing a few public talks now so i've been asked i've done a few um and as well as you know there's plans for things you know again you know little uh, so, you know, interviews here and there. Um, but next year, I'm kind of working on planning for next year for an exhibition, uh, which I think is in April. Um, and then a couple of other things for next year. I won't talk now, but uh, there's going to be Amazing. something quite... Quite keep keep us posted. We have Mercy's emotion will be there a hundred percent. I keep myself busy and just trying to get the history across, especially in the UK. Um, you know, because there's a lot of interest now in in Black history, um, and I think especially in music history as well. Uh, we, you know, the artists here, especially today. Um, what they've achieving and what they're doing. Um, I, I think, you know, my father's story is, is a thing that can inspire people 
you know, because it's got a lot of edge, you know, elements of, of passion, entrepreneurial, community, history, you know, it, it covers a whole spectrum, um, you know, and, and just people working together. So I, I think, um, you know, that that's that's what I'm, I'm doing. That that's absolutely an amazing an amazing springboard, you know, yeah. the, the spark for anything yeah. to come up in the future. And, and also to talk to schools as well. I'd like to do that. To that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We should learn these things in school. I mean, mm. how useful it's gonna be knowing about doing equations, right? Instead of mm. knowing about black or any music history, really, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. So absolutely, I agree with you. Schools should open their doors. Listen, teachers. Absolutely. <laughs> you should open. Lara, the, the surge of vinyl now. There is mm-hmm. a surge. There's a huge interest in vinyl. And uh, you know something, when it really kind of hit me how important vinyl is, um, because, you know, I, I, I now live in Jamaica. Um, and I, in this, this, into this talk that we're having, um, you mentioned after us moving after the Judy Boucher, what did my dad do? He retired and returned to Jamaica. Mm. Um, that was after he opened the new premises uh, to the high road. Um, so that was in 96, he moved, 1996, he moved, retired and, and moved to, well, I should say semi-retired. <laughs> Um, he was, I'm sure he was still oh, yeah, working he kept, busy, he kept busy in Jamaica he didn't right, just sit down yeah. under a, a palm tree no 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 by far no um, so uh, so moving to Jamaica because I spent a lot of time I, I mostly live in Jamaica and when it hit me is going into my dad's studio and picking a CD and putting that on and it doesn't play that's when you realize the importance of vinyl. Mm-hmm. So there is nothing that can delete vinyl. Vinyl is impressed forever. That's music impressed forever. Absolutely. And it's always going to be there. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I encourage every artist, forget your iPre-freeze, what you, you know, the electronic stuff, because that can be wiped mm-hmm. away. You need to press vinyl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that is yes, documentation absolutely. that is your history that is a proof of history everything is on there so that, that's what they should put in their time capsules right absolutely. for future generations to find um and, and and of course vinyl players that would be useful too because mm-hmm. otherwise we can't we can't play them right mm-hmm. so i still have my father's whole sound system in the mm-hmm. back of me in in my living room mm-hmm. here and um it's got every analog instrument to play music that you can possibly imagine. And it's all there. And uh, still use it to this very day to play all the vinyl they left with me, my parents. I'm not against so. tech. I love tech. Tech is mm-hmm. a great thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I work in tech, so you can imagine. Yeah. But it, it's, it's, not, it, it's, it's not the only thing that, helps us to keep hold on, holding on to the good memories right yeah. it's not tech is cannot be the only thing mm-hmm. um where can we find you online you have a, a a very active instagram and facebook page right yes 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 we do uh, yes so uh, thanks uh, to my, my sisters as well because i have 
I have two, well, three sisters, theoretically, three, three sisters I do. And, you know, they all do their part, you know, and I'm trying to of course, rein of course. them in a bit more. I think they're more or less, um, you know, because they're a little bit camera shy. The little one is, you know, the younger one. She's she's a feisty one and she'll, she'll be out there as well. She comes out, but she lives in New York. But... Um, yeah, we, we all kind of do our bit. So we, we, we're trying to get on more social media platforms. At the moment, we are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. Um, we have a website, but um, we are planning to, to be on more social media platforms. Yeah. That's fantastic. It, mm-hmm. it was such an amazing conversation. I mm-hmm. have uh, been inspired by your story and your dad's history since the very first time we talked about it and I'm so happy we finally uh, recorded and I hope this is going to be only the start to spread the beautiful message of trailblazing talent that your father was Um, and I hope to be part of any next event that you're planning and as of course we keep in touch we can't deny we are friends as well so <laughs> we are we are gonna be in touch uh we're gonna yeah, keep in touch and we touch met and, in music and, didn't we and we, we met in music yeah, and we met in music certainly you know i realize you know how passionate we are so yes we met yes. in the clubs didn't we <laughs> yes we used to go around london clubs <laughs> by the way just in case yeah <laughs> Um, and all the, those beautiful friends that we have in common. Yeah, 22 um, years ago, isn't it? Yes, about 25 maybe. I think you were, yes, of course. A like, quarter of a century ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, and, 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 and London was booming with amazing clubs and music and DJs, but that's the story we're going to tell another time because it you, we, we we probably need a month of a podcast lot you know as long as a month because we have so much to say um about a lot of stuff and you know you have other amazing music story uh and stories to tell um uh, thank you so much cleon for being here i'm truly grateful i'm honored and i can't wait to um help you tell this story over and over again Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And, I, you know, your platform versus emotion is absolutely brilliant, you know, and I've seen some clips of, of what you've done and, and you know, the, the, the artists that you have on your platform. So, and, and well done, you know, you've been doing this for what? 16 years <laughs> yes oh. not always on podcast but you know also online you know promoting underground artists giving them a voice really a voice that they wouldn't have anywhere else mm-hmm. so and we are we are proud of that and we are proud of 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 you know it, telling stories that can really inspire people as you just said before you know uh if anyone even only one or two people take out of uh, what we put online any kind of inspiration we are more than happy that, that that that's happening but you know we evolved throughout the years so we have we have a few thousands around following us now and uh, we want to say thank you to all of them by the way truly grateful for their you know Brilliant. following and their interactivity with us uh, but seriously i I think we need a part two. <laughs> I think, I think we need it. Thank you. 
I think we need a part two and um, yeah. explore a little bit more about your amazing musical background as well and your, you know, um, other amazing stories that you have. Thank you so much. I'll see you soon and uh, I you. will... I I will uh, keep on listening to that amazing Afrobeat album you shared with me, um, which we are going to play a little taste at the beginning of the podcast. Oh, enjoy. It's quite a something. Yeah, Yeah, it it makes you move. I'm telling you, I was moving, man. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Uh, Thank you so much. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. Versus Emotion Podcast, organic conversations with creative minds.